unprecedented, never before seen, uncharted waters. You have definitely heard these words about the pandemic. I have probably said them, but they're not quite true. We're not necessarily in uncharted waters right now. It's just that we haven't charted them for about a century. That's Derek Everett, a historian at Colorado State University. He's talking, of course, about the 1918 flu. There have been a lot of comparisons made in the last year between that pandemic and this one. But you may not know much about what happened when the flu hit Colorado. This is a bonus episode of Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. And this one time also public health and history. I'm Andrew Kenny. We're going to learn how Colorado's governor, the Jared Polis of 1918, handled his pandemic, and how the people of Colorado reacted. And as Professor Everett tells it, it's a story with some really incredible moments, a few bizarre developments, and ultimately a lot of tragedy. It's a story that he's been reconstructing for a few months now. The main inspiration for for what research I've done about uh, the influenza epidemic connects to my work at the state capitol. Um, I've been a guide and I've done research at the Capitol since 1997. And so it's it's kind of an ongoing obsession with me. And I was particularly interested to know how the Capitol and state government specifically responded to the influenza pandemic when you compare it to coronavirus pandemic. Okay, let's start at the beginning. The 1918 flu is commonly called the Spanish influenza. But actually, the very first documented outbreak happened about 500 miles east of Denver in Fort Riley, Kansas, in March of 1918. It should be the Kansas influenza, but that that wouldn't go well with the uh, you know American uh, newspapers in 1918. So the fact that for whatever reason, reporting on it in in Spain got all of the attention. That's how the name's been attached to it as the Spanish influenza. Obviously, World War I was happening at the same time, and with so many troops mobilizing, it didn't take long for the outbreak to spread next door to Colorado. Everett traced its first appearance here to ROTC cadets who had trained in Kansas and brought it back to the university in Boulder. As, as we see with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, college campuses are great breeding grounds for disease. You've got lots of people from different backgrounds gathered together. They go home for the weekends, they go to parties, and, and it'll spread pretty rapidly through the community. From there, it moves to Denver, out to the small towns on the plains, up the mountain passes, where soon enough, towns like Gunnison were blockading themselves to try to keep it out. The only real defenses against it sound pretty familiar. Social distancing, masks, hygiene. And as this turns into a full-scale crisis, there are really two people you need to know. One is the governor. The governor of Colorado during the Spanish influenza and during World War I was a man named Julius Caldine Gunter. And Governor Gunter was elected um, in 1916, so took office January of 1917. He was a member of the Democratic Party. Gunter, or Gunta, if you prefer the Germanish pronunciation, or maybe I shouldn't even try, was 59 years old. He was in his second year in office. He was a transplant from Arkansas, a lawyer. He had a huge caterpillar mustache, and even before the flu arrived, he was focused on one gigantic priority. For one thing, Gunter was coordinating the state's efforts to support World War I and make sure that not only were we recruiting soldiers to send to Europe, but uh, food production and all of the manufacturing that was going on in Colorado 
for the war effort. Gunter's focus was much more on the war than it was on the epidemic. Now, Gunter's not necessarily downplaying the virus. He was just kind of disengaged. He put out a message of caution, but he didn't put a lot of force behind it. He acknowledged that there was a particularly strong strain of influenza that year and that people should take precautions. They shouldn't gather in large groups. They uh, should wear face masks if they go out in public. But unlike Governor Polis, who has used plenty of executive orders in modern times, Everett says the governor back then left a lot of the pandemic response to a much younger man, basically the state's chief medical officer, Dr. Erlo Kennedy. And history doesn't record, or at least I don't know, whether he had a mustache too. He was a physician from the town of Basalt in western Colorado and had also served in, in the legislature. He had been the clerk of the House of Representatives. He had uh, powerful friends at the state house. So this Dr. Kennedy spent a lot of time talking to reporters, spreading this message that actually, yeah, we should be taking this seriously. You, you can think of Dr. Kennedy as the Dr. Fauci of the influenza epidemic on at least a, a statewide level. He was really the voice. He was the name that people were reading in the newspapers. For the most part, Dr. Kennedy was waging a war of words and convincing and suggestion to stop the virus. His health board did put out some statewide directives trying to ban big events and things like that, but he didn't necessarily have that much direct power. So instead, most of the regulations and most of the enforcement of regulations for Colorado during the uh, influenza epidemic were left to counties, were left to cities. Which had mixed results. In places like Denver, the city ordered people to wear masks in businesses and streetcars, and at least initially, there was almost utter disregard. That's how the Rocky Mountain News described it, saying thousands continued to throng the big 16th Street stores without masks, and that the order was cause of mirth. By the way, it's interesting to me that in that same article, the Denver mayor comes across a lot like Jared Polis does when it comes to masks in particular. Kind of a guilt-tripping social responsibility theme. The wearer is not only protecting himself, but is protecting others. It is the moral obligation of every person to wear the mask, in a streetcar or in a store. The one who fails to do so is not only endangering his own health, but the health of others. Anyway, a lot of people just really weren't willing to listen, especially at first, and government leaders generally were not willing to push back too hard. Denver and other cities swung back and forth on their orders. Denver eventually gave up on that mask mandate, and, you know, those cities just didn't have that much support from the state. Yes, the governor was urging social distancing, but the actual state government was just business as usual. And not only was it open for regular business, but, you know, at the Capitol, you would have people traveling there from Route County, from Moffat, from Yuma, from Baca to go to state land board auctions for uh, buying more land for farms. You had people coming to the capital from across the state and a place that didn't really have a lot of coronavirus precautions in place. And after those auctions, they went back home, maybe bringing the virus. And it was this perfect breeding ground. Dr. Kennedy, the chief medical officer, doesn't entirely get off the hook either. I read in Dr. Everett's article that the health board convened a meeting of 200 doctors in the Capitol in the same room to discuss influenza, a meeting at which they didn't even really decide anything. And influenza definitely did make its way into the Capitol. There was one especially striking scene in November 1918. The state treasurer collapsed in his office with influenza and had to be 
carried back to his house while several other members of his staff came down with the illness. And yet, as you guessed, nothing changed. Uh, everybody hold your breath while they carry the state treasurer out and, and then we'll get back to business. Of course, they did not have the technology of today. There was no plexiglass, no Zoom, but it's almost like they went out of their way to keep on keeping on. They not only convened the regular Colorado Assembly in January of 1919, but they actually brought the Wyoming state legislature down for a joint session. It's like double the legislating. So you have two bodies meeting all packed together into these chambers. Meanwhile, of course, the virus is raging all across the state and the world. Dr. Kennedy is apparently organizing field hospitals and sending out doctors to distant communities. He's talking to every reporter who will listen, making himself into this household name. And he was pretty successful. Everett thinks that the health board convinced a lot of cities and towns to actually enforce those regulations. But even so, a lot of people didn't make it. The estimates are around 7,500 Coloradans died in just a few months. That's more than the coronavirus has killed, and it was at a time that the state population was much, much smaller. Probably the most prominent casualty of the influenza epidemic in Colorado, and it's, it's kind of painful to even think about this, is Dr. Kennedy. Did you catch that? Dr. Kennedy himself, the Dr. Fauci of 1918 Colorado, died after catching the flu. This was an extraordinarily awful time. Some towns may have lost 10% of their population. But I can imagine that Dr. Kennedy's death was especially resonant. And so it's it's like the ultimate insult to injury that the the most prominent death in Colorado from the influenza epidemic was the person who was doing his level best with almost no support from other state officials to try to keep Coloradans safe. By the summer of 1919, a few months after Kennedy's death, the outbreak had started to weaken. Governor Gunter survived, but his career ended in the middle of the pandemic. Not at all because of his handling of the flu, but because of the thing he'd actually been focused on, World War I. His party turned against him for not being anti-German enough. And he was replaced by another guy in 1919, Governor Shoup, who was similarly hands-off about the outbreak. So, two governors during the pandemic, both pretty passive. That's a big difference from now, when Governor Polis has used extraordinary powers to combat COVID-19. He's met some pretty harsh resistance for that, but Everett thinks that Polis will ultimately be remembered more kindly by history. And at the end of the day, if you have to be judged for either overreacting or underreacting, at least if you are overreacting, you can't be accused of fiddling while Rome burns. Now, with vaccinations underway, it looks like the current pandemic might be entering its own ending phase. I wanted to know, what kind of mark does a time like this leave on society? Are we heading toward the Roaring Twenties? What should we expect? And Everett kind of gave two possibilities. The first option is the 1920s, but the thing to know is that despite all the images of bright vaudeville lights and flapper dresses, that was a reactionary decade in politics. The impact of the war, the impact of influenza hitting at the same time, really made the United States kind of sit back and, and process, say, you know, we, we, need, we need to protect ourselves. We need to cocoon. In Colorado in particular, that took an extremely ugly form. Well, bear in mind, the 1920s nationwide and in Colorado was the glory days of the Ku Klux Klan, where you had an incredibly powerful nativist movement, anti-Catholic, anti-Black, anti-Hispanic, anti- 
almost anything that wasn't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That really took off here in 1920, and Everett sees it, again, as a reaction to the war and to the flu. And Colorado in the 1920s was one of the two most enthusiastic states as far as the Klan was concerned. We had a Klan governor, we had half the state legislature controlled by the Klan. But he doesn't actually expect that we'll see that kind of horrific retrenchment, not in Colorado or nationally. Instead, he's more hopeful. The comparison he makes is to the end of World War II, when the country reacted to a period of suffering and self-denial by doubling down on big investments in things like infrastructure and education. I think that there is that same sense as we start to see light at the end of the tunnel that we've we've been denied things that we enjoy things that we want things that we feel we deserve throughout the pandemic it was such a time of confusion and frustration and i think that there there is going to be i would hope at least there's going to be a sense of of openness and and optimism following the pandemic as this weight is lifted off our shoulders. We will see. And there's still this question of how we'll look back and remember this past year. Before this pandemic, 1918 did not loom particularly large in the popular memory of Colorado's history or the country's. I have a feeling that 2020 will for a long time. I'm Andrew Kenny. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. My co-host, Benta Berkland, and I will be back in your feeds with our next regular episode on Thursday. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News.